Welcome to Off the Record. I'm your host, Marika, and I'm a dietitian, nutritionist, and recovering perfectionist. Join me each week as I bring you raw and real conversations with inspiring men and women discussing matters in health and nutrition that are often swept under the rug. Sit back, relax, pour yourself a cup of coffee or a wine, and enjoy learning from conversations that help us to understand the messiness of what it means to be a healthy and balanced human. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode. Today's episode, I am joined by the amazing Megan Gray, not to be confused with Megan Bray, who we had on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and she is a dietitian working in the eating disorder space. Megan Gray is a psychologist working as well in the eating disorder space. So she is the founder of Gray Mind Psychology and works from a relational and attachment-based approach. And this has stemmed from her early career experience working in severe and complex trauma settings. Her work now is primarily within eating disorders, and she focuses on helping individuals to develop a healthy sense of self and new ways of coping to enable them to separate their eating disorder self and reconnect with a fulfilling and meaningful life once again. So this episode, we are specifically talking about supporting people with disordered eating, but we are talking a lot about um, eating disorders and I guess how they define people. And of course, this episode is going to come with a trigger warning that we are obviously talking about eating disorders. We are talking about complex trauma, and we do also mention suicide in the episode as well. So if this is a sensitive topic for you, then please um, either skip on over to the next episode or make sure that you're listening with somebody who can support you if anything comes up for you. Um, If you do need support after listening to this episode, at the end of the episode and in the show notes, we have some details on where you can go for for support around your eating disorder um, or around any uh, sort of thoughts that you are struggling with. So I hope you enjoy the episode. It is a cracking episode and Megan is an absolutely amazing psychologist and is so aligned with my approach when it comes to health. So let's dive in. Welcome to Off the Record, Megan Gray. How are you today? Great. Thanks for having me. You're so welcome. So Megan Gray is a clinical psychologist and she is here to talk to us about uh, eating disorders and how we can best support somebody with an eating disorder. So firstly, Megan, I just wanted to ask you, um, could you introduce us to the audience and tell us a little bit about what you do for work and I guess your area of interest in psychology? Yes, so I'm a psychologist um, and I'm also the founder of Grey Mind Psychology, which is a private practice here in Paddington in Queensland. Um, So in my private clinic space, I predominantly work with individuals experiencing um, eating disorders as well as disordered eating. Uh, That's a particular interest and passion of mine, as well as what kind of tends to come along with that is a trauma-informed practice. So I work a lot with complex and severe trauma as well. Mm. And how did you get into that area of psychology? Was it something you were always interested in? Yeah, well, in my early career, so essentially my internship, I found myself in working in the domestic and family violence setting. And that obviously was working predominantly with experiences of trauma So I had a really good foundation of a trauma-informed practice, which as I moved into the private setting, I started to really recognize that as I was working in the trauma space, there was such an overlap with eating disorders. 
Um, and so many people were having that comorbid experience of developing a clinical eating disorder in response to the trauma environment. So that quickly kind of led me to, or led me rather to needing to upskill in that space. And I just recognized how much I loved it and developed quite a passion for it. So slowly just found my way, just working probably there. How interesting. I think we're going to come back to that um, overlap with the trauma mm. um, a bit later on because I, I find that personally a really interesting um, uh, overlap as well. Mm. But before we get into the sort of complexities of it, let's talk a little bit about eating disorders versus disordered eating. Is there, I guess, a clear definition between the two and where does that line lie? Mm. Yeah, it's actually a very good question because I think that's where a lot of us can like get caught up. Like it's really tricky to identify whether we have disordered eating or if we do fit the diagnostic criteria for a clinical um, eating disorder. So I think it's important to think about it like a spectrum. So what we would and we call that the eating behavior spectrum, is that there's obviously normal eating on one side and eating disorders on the other. And you can think about disordered eating kind of being somewhere between the two. So disordered eating will have symptoms and behaviors of an eating disorder, but at a lesser frequency uh, and a lower level of severity. So Mm. essentially disordered eating has similar overlap in terms of restricted eating, which looks like skipping meals, um, taking out specific food types, food categories. There can also be compulsive eating, emotion-related eating in their irregular and inflexible eating patterns. And, of course, what we think about with all of that is dieting. And so dieting is actually one of the most common forms of disordered eating. So, which is crazy to think that that's what the industry tells us to do. Like, exactly, exactly. The fact that actually something um, that's disordered is being promoted, uh, people and people are benefiting from promoting something that is disordered is pretty mind blowing. And the fact that dieting is in fact normalized, celebrated, and encouraged is just, yeah. I just can't believe that it's kind of where we're at. And even I, I was thinking when you're saying that, even not just from like a commercial standpoint, but also like a personal standpoint as well. Like, you know, the conversations that people have with their family and friends around weight and dieting and everything. Like I've been in so many situations where dieting is just the conversation that everybody has with each other at Christmas parties and everything like that. And this is not in my dietetics sort of profession. This is more so just in the general public is that that's just general chit chat and the fact that that's actually disordered Mm. is pretty mind-blowing as well exactly exactly the fact that we don't recognize or we don't have that information yet as as a society about the harm that we're creating because what we know of disordered eating and of course in particular dieting is actually the most common risk factor for the development of an eating disorder So think of disordered eating like a precursor to an eating disorder. So if there's an acceptance of disordered eating as normal behaviours, yeah, that dieting is in fact an acceptable thing to be engaged in. It's just so incredibly dangerous for people who are vulnerable um, and susceptible to developing a clinical eating disorder. 
Mm, it's like dieting is like the gateway drug to yeah. eating disorders. <laughs> exactly exactly and it's as if we were normalizing just um yeah talking about drugs in the same sense that we talk about dieting we would never (laughs) wow that's a really interesting way to put it so if we think about it on the spectrum then is there sort of something that will tip somebody over the edge into the development of an eating disorder like is there a trigger or is there sort of um and I guess maybe this is where the trauma might fall into as well is there things that you know have to happen or a a set of circumstances that lead to that development of an eating disorder yes so it is definitely a complex kind of set of circumstances um and I think one of the main messages that I send to everyone I work with and especially family members or loved ones is that it's not a choice um so what we've come to really recognize in the recent research is that eating disorders are actually 50 to 80 percent genetically based so development will occur through a bit of a combination of what we will see genetics temperaments and then this environmental component the factors influences or events that might happen for someone so if I kind of break each of those down the genetic component is um, essentially that um, environment environmental let me try that again the genetic the genetic component is that um environmental factors will influence the eating disorder development by acting on like an environmentally malleable heritable biology so what that means i know it was it was hard to even get out myself (laughs) (laughs) essentially what it means is that um environments environmental factors or stresses will activate a genetic predisposition that occurs for somebody so what I've actually seen for a lot of people I work with is that the minute they start engaging in dieting behaviors, their eating disorder gene will get activated. So they already had that vulnerability before they started entering into the disordered patterns. Yeah. Wow. And mm. so my brain's just ticking here because I'm hearing like so many people online having conversations that are in that weight um, and diet camp, having conversations mm. about saying, well, if you're triggered by my diet approach, then that's your problem. And that that's, um, you know, you shouldn't be triggered by the fact that I'm promoting weight loss or you shouldn't be triggered by the fact that I'm dieting. And what you're saying is that it's like, it's actually like a genetics, it's switching. Yes. It's the environmental factor, sorry, that's switching that genetic switch. And it's not yes. that that person is per se, like having a choice in going, oh, I'm triggered by that. And that's, you know, set me off on an eating disorder. It's that this is a predisposition mm-hmm. and that information then can actually change the way that that happens. Exactly. Exactly. And I'll talk about those other components, but yes, there's essentially this vulnerability that exists for a large proportion of people um, genetically predetermined. And that's why we see such an overlap within families um, in terms of the development of, of course, many mental illnesses, but particularly eating disorders. Um And that is that once they're exposed to very particular environmental factors, we'll just see that gene get switched on at completely different life stages. Like we can't really predict when that gets switched on, Um, but it is exactly this awareness that we're exposing people, very vulnerable people, to things that could activate a mental illness. Mm, Scary. It's pretty scary, yeah. Um, And so then the other things that we're triggering? 
Yes. So then obviously that leads into that environmental part. And a very big part of this is thinking about really significant life changes. Um, They tend to be the environmental stresses. And this is where, of course, we see the role of trauma. Um, And then it can be varying degrees of that as well. So it doesn't have to necessarily be severe and complex trauma. It can be stressful life conditions. It can be a sense of like a huge adjustment being required of them, a divorce, for an example, death, loss of a loved one, um, even hormonal changes. Pretty much any change in your life circumstance can be the environmental trigger. And I think what I often talk about with my clients is, you know, was it an environmental factor that just created a sense of instability? in your life like did it really destabilize you and took away a sense of um like a lot of my life now is not in my control it's feeling pretty chaotic and what we then see for individuals is they'll have this obsession or preoccupation with their food intake as a way to regain control with a regain control of their life and then that leads to once again the clinical eating disorder development yeah, and as a clinician as well, like that's probably what I've seen a lot of mm. um, in the similarities with um, eating disorders across my practice is that it is a lot of this like regaining control of some aspect of their life, feeling that that, that is the one thing that people can sort of feel like that they can get a grasp on when it, potentially everything else around them is mm. falling apart. Exactly. Um, on that note, what about bullying, childhood bullying or um, bullying, yeah, through the adolescence um is that is there any sort of relationship there yes and you know thank you for bringing that up because that's definitely one I should have listed when I was talking about those very common environmental factors because and we'll go on to talk about a bit later in our chat but it is that component of self-worth um that what we know and have come to understand is that an eating disorder is this undue influence of our weight and shape on our sense of self-worth. So if we've experienced bullying or, you know, any kind of impactful experience on how we see ourselves, our yeah, self-esteem, of course, naturally, we're going to be turning to some external factors in our life to try and build back our sense of self, our, our self-esteem to make us feel good about ourselves again. And so naturally, we can see for some people, they just immediately turn towards their body, their weight. You know, if I can at least change the way I look, I might be more liked because there's a thin ideal in society and that's celebrated and applauded. So naturally they they kind of grab onto that as like if people don't like me for these reasons, well, maybe they'll like me for this. Mm, mm, Which is obviously such a damaging damaging way to sort of put your self-worth in Mm. other people's hands. Exactly, exactly. And it's futile because it's a very, yeah, very temporary sense of self-worth. Absolutely. Um, So one further one I wanted to ask is um, what about personality traits? Is there an association between personality traits and development of an eating disorder? Yes, absolutely. So that's why it's this like combination of all three, that genetic, environmental, and then of course our temperament. So um, it is also that genetically programmed component of us. There are innate features and what we know is the environment then continues on to shape those traits that we have and then you can think of symptoms like an outward expression behavioral expression of those traits but a lot of the research um, particularly the more contemporary treatments of eating disorders have spoken about treating to the trait 
because we've come to essentially see that there's a personality profile for particular eating disorders. So, for example, someone who has been diagnosed with anorexia nervosa, there tends to be an overlap in them um, reporting really high tra- high in traits of perfectionism, being inhibited, um, persistent, high achieving, anxious, low levels of novelty seeking, agreeableness, conscientiousness, which is not surprising, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we obviously see that other relationship as well. The research, research has shown us that um, those experiencing binge eating disorder they tend to score very high in impulsivity, being disinhibited, and, of course, the opposite, high levels of novelty seeking. So that only makes sense that it's also another part of the vulnerability, that if they already function in this way, that's already their temperament. This eating disorder is essentially like an expression of all of that, and it kind of really feeds into that natural way of coping already. Mm. So it it really does sound like it's like the perfect storm of all of these factors coming together. And I guess that leads into my next question, which is around, you know, sometimes when we're um, working with somebody with an eating disorder or we're living with somebody with an eating disorder, we sort of get frustrated and might be like, why can't they just, particularly if they're like your, your own child and you're trying to take care of them and help them you might be quite frustrated and be like, well, why can't, why can't they just stop? And why can't they just eat? Or why can't they just do that? And I guess, yeah, like I said, that perfect storm really does play into it. But in terms of what's going on in that individual's mind, are you able to give us any insight of like, you know, what that process is for the individual? Yes. Yes. And that's exactly it, that there is often frustration for those supporting those, um, for loved ones supporting someone with an eating disorder but we have to destigmatize it or, or break down this myth that it's like a lifestyle choice, that that person is just choosing to diet in a you know really rigid way because it's not that, like we've been saying, it's a mental illness with this biological factor. So when we then yet yeah, want to understand, well, what is happening for this person, um, there's a few key features, um, and I won't be able to cover all of them, of course, and it's a bit easier for me to explain it when I maybe narrow it down to just more the restrictive eating disorders, so like bulimia nervosa or anorexia nervosa, just because obviously what's happening inside the mind of each person experiencing the different types of the disorders can vary quite a lot, so I just want to acknowledge that. But if we do have the, the lens of a restrictive eating disorder, one very specific component is this um, – is the role of starvation. So what we, and you would speak, you know, to this a lot in in your role in dietetics, Marika, and that is obviously what we know is that when we're starved of nutrition, the body responds with those physical and physiological and psychological changes. And what we've termed that is the starvation syndrome. And so there's so many, of course, impacts on the body when we enter into starvation syndrome. But one that's really pivotal is the psychological component, and that is this preoccupation and obsession with food. So it's not just thinking about what am I going to eat and, you know, what do I, what are kind of the the boxes I want to tick for my meal. It's an obsession and it dominates and it completely takes over. And I think we can all 
tap into it just a tiny bit when we think about like an example might be that you you know you're in a meeting and it runs into lunchtime <laughs> and like by 30 minutes into your lunchtime you're literally like I can't actually sit here anymore like I can't sit here and pay attention anymore all you can think about is that meal you've got in the fridge and that you want to go and eat it and you can't wait to eat it and what is it that's in there and it actually becomes a preoccupation pretty quickly right mm. And you want to think about then of that, of course, amplified to a disordered level where that's the predominant focus of everything you do. I was going to say, I use an analogy um, with that with my clients when I was working with eating disorder clients. I um, used to say, you know, and we're not even with eating disorders, even with just from restriction in general, is that if we think about like the, I guess, the things that keep us alive being food, water, sleep, and air, they're sort of like our really core things that keep us functioning. And if you restrict, for example, sleep, the the thing that would naturally happen is that you become obsessed with sleep. Like you can't function. You can't think about anything other than when you're going to get to sleep. Like if you had two hours sleep a night for two weeks straight, all you would be thinking about is sleep. And as soon as you were given the opportunity to sleep again, there's no way that you'd just go back to sleeping for, you know, seven hours a night. You'd sleep for 12 hours a night for at least a couple of weeks as that sort of like rebound effect of the consequences of restricting for such a long period of time. And again, I would say the same for thirst. You know, if you are dehydrated, all you can think about is, oh my God, my mouth is parched. I'm so thirsty. I need to get water. So it's not even, um, I would say it's not even limited to just food in itself. And I think that we almost normalize it when it comes to food. But if you thought about the same thing when it came to water, sleep, or air, like if I starved somebody of air, of course they're going to become obsessed with thinking about getting more oxygen because it is a survival mechanism, whereas we think that food is this thing that we can just play with in that sense that it's just like, oh, well, it doesn't matter if we don't have it for a couple of days. Yes, exactly, and it, and I think – it speaks a lot to the human species. Like we're the only species that choose to restrict ourselves of these things that are fundamentals. Like they're not choices. They're not things that we get to just skip out on, but we do that. Like we just, yeah, say, oh, I'm just not going to eat breakfast or I'm just going to sleep a couple less hours because I got to work, but that's actually not how it works. Um <laughs> And that we're the only species that do that. You don't see any anyone else or anything else rather doing that. That makes me really question my sleep habits. <laughs> yeah, it should. Oh yeah. <laughs> but I guess what um, what's a helpful thing to think about is um, actually that there's this idea of it being like an eating disorder voice. Um, and I do this a lot in the treatments that I, um, in the way I treat, sorry, eating disorders is actually externalizing it being a voice. And what I think is important for people to imagine or connect with is that it's, it's like having an eating disorder voice that is super critical, relentless and intrusive. And it's with you no matter what you do. It's not just when you're eating. Um, and it's a voice that makes you feel like nothing you do is good enough. And it's always there pushing you to just put it, to take it a bit further. You know, that if you skip your meal, then they might say, well, skip the next one. Same as, you know, if it says that, oh, you're not feeling great today, maybe eat something. And then that's maybe where that binging starts and they say eat more. And it might be that eat excessively part. 
it's the same as with the eating disorders eating disorders voices to purge to get rid of the food that you've just eaten so you want to think or connect with rather that the voices of an eating disorder are never ending dialogue and it plays inside the mind of that person who's suffering constantly so it's exhausting exhausting exactly and you have to think that that person is still trying to maintain every other part of their life while they still have somebody in their head essentially telling them that every single thing they're doing is wrong Mm. and that they can't please that voice no matter what they do. And imagine the toll of that. And I'm going to stereotype here, but it also, I guess, fits into the um, personality traits that you were saying before. So many people, particularly with that restrictive um, eating disorder type, are like high achievers and continue to be high achievers amidst all of this that's going on for them. So it's actually a phenomenal like exhaustion, like a phenomenal toll on the individual that, you know, that they're potentially achieving incredibly high grades whilst this is all going on as well. Exactly. And that's why we see it obviously being such a huge toll on someone's mental well-being. Like that's why we see people become so incredibly unwell is because this is just not a sustainable way of coping. Um, and, and of course, it's not a sustainable thing physiologically. There's in, in huge medical risks. But, yes, I think we can just see that these people who are having to carry this eating disorder voice, they're suffering. And we have to think about that. That's why it's not a choice. They're in, they're actually really suffering. Yeah, I think that's a really great way to frame it is that if you're going into the conversation every time, you know, whether it's a conversation that you've had a hundred times over or a million times over, it's the individual is suffering and they're not intending Mm. this harm on themselves or on others as well. Um, Yeah, it's just... It's just mind-boggling, The, I guess, the toll that it just must mm. wear you down and the fact that eating disorders are so um, long-term for, for so many mm. people. Like, you know, there's people that are, I don't know whether this statistic is right or not, but there's something I saw a while ago around seven years or something like that is the average time or the length of time for diagnosis for a lot of eating disorders. Yes, yes. Um, which is just, it's depressing. Yeah, it's really hard for um, a lot of people in this space, both, you know, as a practitioner working in this space, but absolutely for a lot of my clients that they've had to go through so many, so much treatment um, and they've had this pretty much lifelong experience of an eating disorder that it's incredibly hard to keep going, to keep trying to recover because it's an incredibly difficult disorder to recover from because you actually essentially have to feel worse to get better. And that's what is really difficult. Like we're essentially taking away the thing that they've used to cope for so long that we're then saying we're going to take away the thing that you've used to cope for so long and we're going to make you feel worse and you won't have the thing that you used to cope when you feel worse. So welcome to treatment. I mean, (laughs) isn't that really difficult? Oh, wow. When you put it like that, it's you can see why mm. so many people sort of deter from, you know, going down the line of treatment. Um, on the flip side, though, let's talk about treatment. What does that look like and why is it beneficial that even though it's hard that we should be doing it as well? Yes, exactly. And I think we have to have hope that it is worthwhile, even though you, ha- you, you will feel worse and you are going to have to feel worse to get better. Obviously, getting better is worthwhile because you will regain so much of your life and you will regain 
the part that you've lost. And that's what I talk a lot about, obviously, in my treatment approach. Um, this comes with a caveat as, of course, there's different treatment approaches um, and I can only really speak to individual treatment with adults because that's mainly where I work from. Family-based therapy for adolescents is um, the gold standard when treating young adults or children and so that's a very different approach as well. But essentially when working in with adults, I absolutely help them to connect with this idea of there's this eating disorder self like we've been speaking about, but there's also a healthy self in there. And what we want you to see is that unfortunately your eating disorder self has taken over. You know, it's gotten so strong over time because we've listened to it. It's dictating everything. It's calling the shots. It's a bit of a bully really at this point. And unfortunately, your healthy self has had no room. It's had no room to grow. It's had no room to develop. And now it doesn't have a voice at all that the eating disorder just takes over. And so recovery and treatment is about let's give your healthy self a bit of a voice again. Let's start building that part of you up again. Let's let that healthy self one day be strong enough to deal with everything that comes up in your life so that your eating disorder self no longer serves you. It's no longer necessary and you don't need it in the way that you did. And I think that's a really lovely treatment approach because, like I was saying before, so many people come into treatment incredibly scared and resistant and they're, and they're saying, like, please don't take away my eating disorder because it is working and it is giving me something. And that's an important part of treatment is actually really acknowledging yeah, you're right, your eating disorder has most definitely given you something and you do need to learn from that and we need to explore that and we need to acknowledge it. So that's really a first part of treatment is actually just saying your eating disorder has helped you to survive, Some sometimes helped you to survive the most horrific circumstances and mm. that we have to honour that to begin with. I totally agree. And again, I was having the same conversations with my clients around even, you know, on the flip side, not restrictive eating disorders, but more your binge type as well is that, you know, binge eating is a coping mechanism. And if that coping mechanism kept you alive, it actually served its purpose. And if you gained 20, 40 kilos, 50 kilos, whatever it is in the process, yet you are still alive today and that coping mechanism got you here, that is a beautiful purpose that it has served you. And yes, it may not be serving you anymore. And great time to to relook at it and to re you know readjust what the purpose is and where we can realign our goals and our values here. But I think that's such a beautiful way to sort of come into it is just, I guess, with that neutrality of sort of saying, you know, we're here. It's not a bad thing that we're here. Like it's obviously not an ideal situation that we're in, but let's not judge where we've been. Yes. Beautiful. Yeah, you described that so lovely. And that's it because I think then we they then I think that they can drop their armor and I think there's this difficult stigma again, especially you know as a practitioner, a lot of people don't want to enter into the space of treating eating disorders because clients are seen as resistant to treatment, um, and so naturally you know practitioners just say like I'm not going to do that work if they're not willing to do it or half the battle is just getting someone kind of ready for change, then I think this honours why they're resistant, this honours why they're struggling, this honours why on earth they don't want to be in your room, and I get that. And so I think this way it feels like it's me with my clients kind of working 
to relinquish the eating disorder rather than them seeing me as the person opposite just trying to rip their eating disorder away from them and they're holding, you know, on so tightly thinking, please don't take this thing that I know that gives me safety and control away. So I think it does change the therapy dynamic as well, just having this different treatment approach. Yeah, which is actually such an important um, sort of, I guess, measure of clinical outcomes as well in terms of their recovery. If they're not sort of meshing well with either their psychologist or their dietitian, then it can absolutely have an impact on the outcome that they have from that treatment. Yes, exactly. Um, sorry, you. I was just going to say <laughs> the only other thing, of course, is which I, I feel like I have to say is that medical stabilisation is a very big part of treatment And I just wanted to, of course, mention that as well, that as much as we're doing a lot of the psychological work, the the first step in any eating disorder recovery is, of course, to make sure that a client is um, physiologically stable. And so we always work on normalising and prioritising, not normalising, we always work on establishing and prioritising normal eating. And, of course, that's why um, treatment from a collaborative team-based approach is best. That's why, of course, we would work with um, dietitians like yourself to have that be that first line of treatment where that person actually is f- physiologically stable enough to then do this psychological work. Yeah, and I guess as a dietitian, I see that happening sort of all together because sometimes you can't do – I found it really challenging to sometimes do that sort of medical stabilisation from a nutrition standpoint when the psychology is just putting up such a barrier that, you know, that I'm not, you know, able to do a lot of the trauma work or those sorts of things that can help them to, I guess, soften those barriers. And um, I guess I don't have the the skills that it comes to in order to, uh, what's the right word I'm use, trying to use here? Um, yeah, I don't have the skills that a psychologist would have to be able to sort of help them unpack some of the things mm-hmm. that are going on that are really resisting them from them being able to step into the field of being able to, you know, eat more and get to a point where they can be medically stable. So I think um, I think if you have access to a psychologist and a dietitian and a doctor, that's obviously like mm. the dream to have all of those working together at the same time. Um, on that note, in terms of um, reaching out for support for somebody with an eating disorder, what what would you say is the the best way to approach somebody who you think might have an eating disorder or um yeah how do you have that conversation how do you begin that conversation yes well i think it fits very well with everything we've said up up until this point and that's about um going into it with this informed lens of this person has been using this as a coping mechanism so already acknowledging it as that same as um I was saying before, acknowledge their defensiveness, their resistance, acknowledge that they may not be ready for change. So their readiness for change might be that they're not even remotely saying it's a problem yet. <laughs> they're right. They might be at that point where they're saying, no, this is just a diet. I'm fine. I don't know what you're talking about, you know, and that's okay that you need to kind of be along with them on that journey and see that all of those responses make sense and they're natural and normal and part of their recovery actually that even just those initial conversations about is this a problem or not that of course is only going to help them to get better so I think if I was to give something really practical in terms of advice it would be enter into it with curiosity so curious questions are best 
don't enter into it with assumptions or accusations. You know, I think you've got an eating disorder. How particularly unhelpful is that? So instead... Um, God, I can't imagine that going down well. <laughs> exactly. And unfortunately, that's exactly what a lot of people do, especially if it is from their own fear. Like you were saying at one point, you know, if it's a parent and it's your child and you mean like you've got an eating disorder, we're going to get this disorder. I'm going to take you immediately to the doctor because this is just not okay. Obviously, that's not going to be helpful. You're just going to be kicking in their armour as well. So, yeah, what I was saying is that it's those curious questions and they can be just speaking from what you've noticed. So something like I notice you have been struggling a lot with meal times. Like often when we sit down as a family, it looks like you're really struggling to finish your meal um, or maybe it looks like you, you're even resistant to come and join us at the table altogether. Like do you want to tell me a bit of what's happening for you? Um, or even when you think about eating, can you tell me what that's like for you? Can you explain it to me? So you just want to first get a sense of where they're at and actually what is happening for them. And then that will naturally lead to where you can talk about problem solving or solutions or plans and action plans, but don't just go into it with that as the agenda. Yeah. And I think that's probably somewhere where you could also use the whole um, using more I statements than you statements as well. And sort of going, you know, I'm feeling that, you know, this is what's happening or I'm noticing this, this and this rather than going in and going, well, you don't yeah, like you said, you don't eat dinner at dinner time. This why is why is this happening or do you have this or um, really making it more about you and your concern for the individual um, as opposed to going, you must be this or you, 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 you. Yes, exactly. Is there anything else that I guess we should avoid when having those initial conversations, be it with a daughter, a son, Mm -hmm. a family member, a friend? Um, Is there anything else that we should avoid talking about? I think our natural inclination is to go towards weight, isn't it? Um, Because that is often a signal of an eating disorder, but of course um, doesn't have to be, there doesn't have to be any changes in weight for someone to be experiencing eating disorder. However, that does tend to be an outward expression or signal, especially if it's a loved one. So um, I think that's a dangerous space because what we know and understand is that when someone has the eating disorder voice rampant, that eating disorder voice knows how to twist it to fit the narrative, right? So if it's if you're going in saying, you look really skinny, you've lost so much weight, that can actually be reinforcing to the eating disorder. Um, the eating disorder vo- voice might say, that's a bloody good win. Awesome. That's exactly what we're <laughs> looking for. <laughs> and obviously, you as that other person who doesn't have that eating disorder voice is rather saying, hey, that's actually a problem. I'm worried about that. So... Um, that's where we just steer clear of weight-related conversations or or shape-related comments because they unknowingly reinforce the eating disorder. And it's actually the same or rather it's the opposite when someone we love is in recovery. Often they'll say, like, you look really healthy. I'm so glad to see you're healthy now and you look so much better and I'm so glad to see you've put on all this weight. And, oh, my goodness, that is so triggering for that person in recovery. The number of people that, yeah, have said that to me, that the whole healthy comment is just the most triggering thing. Exactly. Yes, I speak to that as well. Like with all my clients, they're just like, as I'm getting better, all I keep getting told is you look so healthy. And the eating disorder voice is saying healthy means fat. And obviously for them, that is obviously a, a significant trigger because they've got this undue influence of weight in terms of how they see themselves. So, 
yeah, if I can say what you should avoid, number one is comments on the wave. Mm. And I, I guess that becomes a challenge then when medical stabilization is also an mm-hmm. important factor that we just mentioned before, because if we think that weight is, I guess, um, a really crucial element in medical stabilization, that conversation probably does need to be had at, at some point and potentially some point quite soon if, um, you know, hospitalization or something like if we're talking about quite serious, um, medically unstable eating disorders like anorexia nervosa, where there is a significant, um, you know, component of un- underweight, um, yeah, I guess that conversation would have to be brought up on an individual basis in that context. Yes, and I think you can talk about like medical risk. You can talk about that person's life being in danger because that is true. Eating disorders are life-threatening and we don't want to minimise that. We actually need to say that and we need to have those conversations. So you're so right. We we want to still be very um, direct in saying this is jeopardising your you know, health, this is putting you at risk, this could actually end your life. But that's a bit of a different conversation than, oh, I just noticed you kind of on this outwardly looking like this based on your weight. That's just somewhat different, isn't it? Yeah, and I guess it also comes um, with, I guess, how loaded is the question as well. Like uh, I was just thinking as you were saying Mm -hmm. that when people are saying, um, you know, your life is at risk and, you know, all of these things, I've had quite a lot of um, clients with eating disorders who've, I guess, had those questions come at them from professionals in a really loaded way um, where it's sort of like it's almost – putting the, the the blame back on them is like you're doing this and your life is at risk and you're doing this to yourself. Mm. Um, so I think, yeah, here it's, it is really about, like you were saying earlier, about I guess the empathy and compassion and everything that you're coming in with in this conversation, that it's not that you're projecting that, you know, onto the individual with the eating disorder. It's that you're, I guess, collaborating with them and sort of going, these are my concerns. How, what, what's next? Like what are we going to do in terms of navigating this? Yeah, beautiful. And that what um, what you were saying was really helpful because I immediately thought of like it's a threat and I think we tend to do that as, yeah, like a parent or a partner or even absolutely as a practitioner and it's like we think we can scare them into getting better. Like if you don't change this immediately, you're going to die. That's not necessarily going no. to be the helpful way to get someone to move. It can be from, like you say, your own fears. Like I'm really scared about what this means for your life and I'm really scared for something to happen to you. Please can we work together about what would be the first step you can take? Yeah, and I'm going to throw in a bit of a curveball question here is I guess then the suicide risk with that as well. I was just thinking if we sort of threatening that there's a – there's a potential impact on the individual's life. If there is suicidal ideation there, then that actually might feed into the eating disorder um, voice that you were speaking about before mm. as well. Is that something that you've sort of seen before? In terms of like the co-occurrence of being having suicidal idea- ideations at the same time as complex eating disorder? Yes, or I guess the the crossover between, I guess, the suicidal thoughts coming from that that eating disorder mm. voice as well. Mm. Well, I think what I definitely see is worthlessness, right? Like I think that eating disorder voice tells the person that they're worthless, that they have nothing to offer, that no matter what they'll do, it's never going to be good enough and that's why they have to put so much energy into just trying to make at least mm. one part better 
which is how you look, right? And if you're so useless, then at least just be better enough to control something. You know, that's the inhibitor mm-hmm. sort of voice. It's horrific. So, yes, you're right. I mean, how can you be told you're worthless as a constant narrative and not let that lead to hopelessness, which leads to suicidal ideation? So I, I would say, I don't know if that answers your question exactly, but I would say most definitely there's an overlap. Yeah, no, I think it's just something obviously to be aware of, you know, when we're having these conversations is that that is maybe something that is also happening within yes, that right. individual as well. Yeah, you're so right. So is it, when it comes to these conversations, obviously they're quite difficult to have. Is it better to say something and say it wrong? Or is it, you know, what happens if we're afraid to have these conversations? Are we better off, I guess, avoiding the conversation altogether and sort of tippy-toeing around it? Or are we better off having the conversation and trying and potentially saying it wrong? Um, What is your opinion on that? I would definitely say have the conversation. I I would definitely say it's better than saying nothing at all because of this factor that we've been speaking about and that's the the medical risk to their life that as this goes untreated, um, of course, that can jeopardise their physiological well-being. The longer we leave that, the more risk increases, the more they kind of really get quite spiraling into those eating disorder behaviors they tend to escalate that's the nature of an eating disorder is that once you kind of start restriction it kind of leads to okay how do i do how do i restrict more and more which then we might see additional eating disorder behaviors arise such as purging which increases the risk even further um so i think yes as as the time goes by and we notice and we've got concerns if we can intervene early we, we know that a person is more likely to recover, especially if you are a parent and you see any of these, even like we were saying at the beginning, disordered eating, you see the glimpse of that or your child or teen is starting to talk about dieting. If you can intervene as early as possible, you're more likely to um, support that person to recovery. So give it a go. It's okay to stuff up, fumble your way a bit through it and acknowledge it. Be like, oh, hang on. Maybe the way I've just said that is from my own fear and anxiety. Can I try that again? That's okay. You're obviously um, modeling vulnerability, which is what they need. That That's such a beautiful thing to say. And I think that's such a perfect way to frame it is that even if you begin the conversation by saying, you know, we're not going to be perfect, you know, I'm not going to be able to express myself in probably the right way. And I, I might offend you in the process of doing this, but mm. please like, let, let's do this together and let's have this conversation together. And if I am offending you, tell me. And if I can word things better, you know, tell me. Um, so you're being really open with that that conversation. And, again, I think minimising that threat that you mentioned earlier um, that the, the the person with the eating disorder is going to feel. So I think that's that's such a beautiful way to word it. Yeah, I love the way you said it as well. I think that sense of, like, let's do this together, that's really nice. So when it comes to recovery from an eating disorder, in your opinion, I guess, how long is um, recovery typically for an individual? Like, is it months? Is it years? What's the process um, that we can expect for recovery from an individual if we can expect anything? Well, I would say in like the shortest, least complicated, maybe the most frustrating answer I'm going to give is that, of course, it's it's dependent on every person Um, and it's different for every person in terms of the severity of the eating disorder, how soon, like I was saying, we intervene. Um, We know obviously recovery, we have, there's a lot more statistics to 
to show recovery is more possible if we intervene with, within the first three years. Um, so I think what, of course, we, we want to acknowledge is that recovery is never linear and that there's going to be those peaks and valleys, those good days and those bad days. But what we want for that person is those key three components of medical stabilisation, psychological intervention, um, and that really strong supportive environment. And if we can have all three of those, we tend to know that, of course, recovery success is possible. In terms of recovery, what does recovery look like for an individual? Um, And again, is it different for everyone or is there sort of, I guess, a criteria that we fit when we're recovered and what does recovery even mean? It's such a good question and there is a bit of debate about there is a bit of debate about it in the field in the sense of some people might say recovery is just that you've learned how to deal with your triggers. You might still have the eating disorder voice, but you have learned how to no longer engage in the disordered eating behaviours um, and that that is still recovery and that if you can still live your life, of course, in this value-driven way and not act on the eating disorder, then that still means that you can have a fulfilling life and I do agree with that. But there is still hope that you can be entirely free from the eating disorder voice completely as well because it loses its power when we stop acting on it. So I have seen that for a lot of people I work with. Um, And I think one of the um, best ways that someone has described recovery is actually Carolyn Costin. She's a leading therapist in this space. She um, opened up a really amazing treatment center in the states and they've brought a model of that over here to Queensland which is pretty amazing and she speaks about how being recovered is um, this idea where you can accept your body size and shape as as it is you no longer have these self-destructive relationships with food and exercise you can recognize that weight is not important in any way and it no longer carries importance in your life and number one is that you're not willing to compliment, compromise your health to look a certain way. And I think that does speak to a lot of obviously the eating disorder um, behaviours and be able to think what a more flexible, free life. And that's what I want for every person I work with. That's so such a beautiful way to end the podcast as well. <laughs> so if somebody does want to work with you in particular or with your team, um, what is the best way for them to find you? Is it online? Is it, you know, what's what's the best way? Yeah, so we, um, we're a private practice. We have quite a few psychologists working in the space of eating disorders. Um, and so Grey Mind Psychology, just our website, as well as our social media, our Instagram does direct you to booking links and all of that. We absolutely, um, a lot of us work from, from this approach if it did resonate with you. Amazing. And for those that I guess are sitting here going, oh my God, I wish somebody would reach out to me like we've just described, what is the way, aside from just, you know, directly going to say your website, where are places where they can go to get access to information to learn more and to, I guess, see their options in terms of where to go next? Yes. So um, if you are more from a loved one perspective, there's of course the National Eating Disorders Collaboration website. They have um, yeah, a plethora of resources and information and, and you can really educate yourself if you want to feel quite equipped before you enter that conversation, as well as the Butterfly Foundation. Um, they've also got some fabulous resources. 
if you yourself are experiencing any of these difficulties, I mentioned her before, Carolyn Cruston. She has a book called um, Eight Keys to Recovery, and it's just the best book. I love it. So um, it really talks a lot about this eating disorder self versus healthy self. So it can be a bit of a self-help resource if you're looking for that. That's a great idea, um, particularly for people who you know might have not have the financial resources or anything at this point mm. in time to book in. The other thing I was going to say is that the Butterfly Foundation do have their um, hotline as well, which I'll add their phone number to yes. um, at the end of this episode and also in the show notes as well. Yeah, amazing. Thank you so much, Megan, for joining us for this conversation. I have certainly learned a lot and I hope that everybody else has. Um, I feel very grateful and very honored to have your expertise here on the podcast. So thank you so much. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Before we finish up this episode, I wanted to remind you that there is support available if you are struggling with an eating disorder. The best place to begin with support if you don't know where to go is probably your GP or alternatively, you can call the Butterfly Foundation, which is an eating disorder uh, support and their national helpline is 1-800-334673. And you can also chat online or email them. Just head to the butterflyfoundation.org.au. If you are struggling with suicidal ideation, you can also call the Lifeline Australia hotline. It is a 24-hour hotline and is available for crisis support on 13 11 14. So that's 13 11 14. Please don't be afraid to reach out. Whoever you need to reach out to, in whatever way you need to reach out, there is help available and recovery is absolutely possible. Thank you so much to everybody for tuning into this episode today. As I said in the beginning, Megan is an amazing psychologist and I feel very grateful to have had her on this podcast and for her to share her wealth of knowledge in this area. It is a topic that is a really sensitive topic for a lot of people and it is a really challenging thing for people who are sort of sitting on the sidelines supporting somebody through an eating disorder to also go through. So I also want to take a moment to acknowledge, you know, if you are in a family with somebody who does have an eating disorder or your partner's got an eating disorder and you are struggling personally as well, I just wanted to take this moment to say that you too deserve support and help. And it is a really challenging thing to be supporting somebody with an eating disorder. So please don't invalidate what you are feeling and the toughness of the situation that you are going through. Um, And again, please reach out for support if you do feel like that you need it. And it's so okay if you need it because it is such a challenging situation. So look after yourself, please. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I will speak to you guys next week. As always, love to see you share the episode. So please tag me at Marika Day on Instagram. Thank you. 